In general, we know that there's a uh, advice from the Torah that says, that we should think about our ways and investigate them. Which means that in general, a person is obligated to think about how he's living his life. And the first step in thinking how he's living his life is to realize, and this is the foundation of everything, that the person himself and only the person himself is responsible for his own life. I know one time uh, Rabbi Nathan Wachsvogel, who was the mashkiach from Lakewood, a very great tzaddik, who was a very good friend of my father-in-law's, and I studied under him in Lakewood over 30 years ago, met the Hafez Saim in the year 1930. And one of the things the Hafez Saim said to him, he had a bunch of young men at the time, they were probably about 20 years old, who came to visit him. The Hafez Saim was the sage of the generation, the uncrowned king of the Jewish people. And he was already close to 100 years old, if not older. And they came to him and he spoke to these young boys and said, in Olam Hazer, in matters of this world, meaning worldly matters, like livelihood, money, and the like, you don't have to worry so much. You have a rich father, you have a rich grandfather, you have a rich uncle, they can take care of you. So you don't have to worry so much. But in spiritual matters, you only have yourself. You have nobody but nobody to rely upon. That's what we told them. In materialistic things, you can rely upon sometimes other people. Friends help you. Person's going down in business, he calls his friends, they get together, they, they uh, get money together, they uh, get loans for him, they secure bank loans, and they help him. But in spiritual matters, nobody can help you. That's what he said. At the time, he said, he was a young man of 20, he didn't know exactly what the rabbi was referring to. Well, what does he mean? But as time went on, he started to realize the truth of the rabbi's words. That truly, we are the only cause of our own spiritual success or failure. We are totally responsible for ourselves. And once we get that clear, that we alone and only us are responsible for ourselves, then we first start to know how to take care of ourselves. Unless we feel the akhrayut, the responsibility that we have to take care of ourselves. Nobody else is going to take care of us. Not our parents, not our friends, not our teachers. Now you will ask, what do you mean? Parents do their best to take care of their children spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, everything. And teachers care about you. But if the person himself is not responsible, nothing works. Nothing works. In physical matters, you don't have to care about so much yourself. If somebody's there to take care of you, he can take care of you. Find many people that don't seem on their own able to make it, yet people take care of them. But in spiritual matters, it doesn't work that way. If you're not going to be totally responsible for yourself, nobody can help you. And that's really the depth of the words of Pitakavot when it says, Im en ani li mi li. If I'm not for myself, me, Lee, who is for me? Implying rhetorically, nobody is for me. If I'm not for myself, nobody can help me. If I'm, excuse me? If I'm not for myself, who can help me? 
And that's the Aleph Bet of Cheshbon HaNefesh. That's the beginning and the foundation of making an accounting of your life. You first have to realize that you alone are responsible for your life. Nobody else is going to be responsible. Nobody else is going to help you in this. In spiritual matters, you alone have to be responsible for your life. Especially that we're in the weeks before Rosh Hashanah, the month of Elul, when we know that Rosh Hashanah is a judgment for the year, so it's upon us to reflect upon the year. How did we live the year? Not only in terms of finding the mistakes that we made, the ways of life that we're not so proud of that we want to change, but also everything that happened during the year. The kindnesses of God, the blessings that God has blessed us throughout the past year. It's very easy to forget the past. Very easy to forget the past. In fact, the Havot of Avot, one of the great books on Musad, writes, why is it that people don't recognize the unbelievable multitude of kindnesses that God bestows upon us? Why don't we think about them? Why don't we remember them? And he gives different reasons. One of the reasons is, is that the human nature is such that we don't dwell on the past. We always think about what's going to happen, what's the future. And therefore our eyes are focused on the future and we don't dwell upon the past of what has happened to us in the past. If we would dwell upon the past, we would start to see what Hashem has done to us. And this concept is explained very, very clearly in this week's parasha. In this week's parasha, it starts off, it says, And it shall be that when you come to the land, that God has given you as an inheritance, referring to the land of Israel, and you inherit it, and you settle in it, you shall bring from the first of all the fruits of the earth that your land has produced, that Hashem has given you, you should place the fruit, the first fruits in a basket, you shall go to the place that God has chosen, meaning the Beit HaMikdash, which is the place in Yushalayim that God has chosen where to bring it, the Shaken Shemosham, to dwell his name there, you should come to the Kohen, that will be in those days, and you shall tell the Kohen, I am proclaiming today in front of Hashem my God, Kibati el haaretz, I have come to the land. I should nishpa Hashem lavotenu that God has sworn to give to our forefathers. Latelano, He has given it to us. Meaning, you have to first acknowledge that God has delivered His promise. He has given you the land, and you come and you give the basket to the kohen. The anita veamarta, and then you have to say in a very loud voice, and you say lefne Hashem lokecha before God, and you start to recount all the wonderful things that God has done to you. Arami Oved Avi. The first thing you say is that Arami, Laban, who was called Arami, wanted to destroy my father Yaakov. My forefather Yaakov was almost destroyed by Laban. In fact, the words of the Pasuk is that he did destroy my father. Arami Oved Avi. Arami, the Aramaic one meaning Laban, destroyed my father. But as she says, it didn't mean he destroyed him in reality, it means he, in his mind, intended to destroy him. And by people that are not Jewish, their intention is held accountable as if they actually did it. So Arami Oved Avi, Arami Laban tried to destroy my father. That's the first thing. 
and we were saved from that. Second thing, I hear in Mitzrayimah, and my father went down to Egypt trying to escape from Laban, went to Egypt to escape the famine, and he dwelt there with a few people, 70 people, and he became a great nation there, powerful, many, and the Egyptians did evil to us, they tortured us, they placed upon us a heavy burden of work, and again we cried to God, the God of our fathers, Hashem heard our voices, He saw our affliction, He saw our struggle, He saw our pressures, and Hashem took us out of Egypt He took us out of Egypt with a very strong hand with an outstretched arm with great fear with miracles, wonders all types of miracles are done by God for the Jewish people to save them He brought us to this place meaning the land of Israel and He gave us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, now I am bringing the first of the fruits of this land that God has given me, and you bow down to God and so on. And, and therefore, this is the first mitzvah of this Benashah that we are told to take the first fruits that our land produces, bring them in a the basket to the Kohen in the Bet HaMikdash, and proclaim the history of how God has helped you. And she says the following. Why do we have to proclaim this whole history about what happened to us? You have to say clearly to the Kohen all of what happened to you and how Hashem has helped you, that you should not be kafui tova. Kafui tova literally means living in denial of the goodness that God has given you. Hiding the goodness. As if someone does good to you and you are in denial about it. That's kafui tova. In order not to be kafui tova, in order not to be an ingrate, a person who doesn't recognize the goodness, you have to proclaim what God has done to you. And then it says that you should say in a loud voice, Va'anita Lashon Haramat Kol, you should say in a loud voice, Arami Oveh David, that Laban has destroyed my father, Maskir Haste Hamakol. You have to mention the kindnesses of God. And those are the kindnesses of the Jewish people in general. And we see from this Mitzvah a very important thing. That part of Cheshbon HaNefesh, part of making an accounting of your soul, Part of making an accounting of your life before Rosh Hashanah, when you're trying to make resolutions, when you're trying to make vidui confessions about things that you have done wrong, part of it is to remember the chaste Hashem, the kindnesses of God. You cannot feel anything towards God unless you feel that you're constantly receiving from God. You cannot feel you're receiving anything from God unless you literally go back to the past. And human nature, the whole of our rights, is that we don't think in the past. We always think in the future. We always think in the future, and if we go back to the past, we always think about the bad things. We never think about the good things. But it's our obligation, in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, to start to, in a sense, psych ourselves up. The way we psych ourselves up, number one, is to start to reflect how God has helped us throughout our lives. Not only the past year. In reality, you have to go all the way back the way they went all the way back. They didn't start from their lives. They went all the way back hundreds of years earlier to Arami, Oveh David, to Laban, 
Laban's time with Yaakov, that was their forefathers, went all the way back and started to talk about the beginning of the Jewish people and how Laban wanted to destroy the Jewish people and how there was famine and Yaakov went to Egypt and there they were enslaved and they were tortured and they were pressured and God saved them again and he brought them to the land of Israel flowing with milk and honey to start to to recognize the kindness of God this is part of the the accounting that we have to do for ourselves if we would do it you start to feel God you start to feel God in your life and you start to feel an obligation towards God and you start to look at all the mitzvot that God tells us to do not as obligations or as burdens or restrictions but rather a way that you could pay back Hashem a way that you could do something for Hashem who has done so much good for us. But you only sense that He has done good for us if you feel it. And you only feel it if you think about it. And you only think about it if you go back to the past. And you have to know if the Havol of Avot writes that this is one of the reasons why people don't recognize the kindnesses of God and the goodnesses of God because they don't go live in the past and they don't go back in the past. It means that it's human nature not to think about the past. So therefore, you have to try the next few weeks to Rosh Hashanah as an exercise. You have to try to devote a few minutes every day. Don't make it more than three minutes. Three minutes is a long time when you have to do something every day. But take three minutes every day, isolated from every distraction, all by yourself, and for three minutes every day start to reflect upon what happened last year all the good things that happen. Most of us are not starving. Most of us have food. Most of us have a home to live in. It could be an apartment, it could be a beautiful home, doesn't matter. We have all the roof over our heads. Start to reflect of all the things that we have in our lives. Start to reflect about everything that God has done to us. Reflect about the bad things too. It's part of the din, it's part of what happened last Rosh Hashanah. That's how we start to feel what Rosh Hashanah is. Everything that happened in the last year all happened on Rosh Hashanah last year. That's when it was decreed. <coughs> and you will see that even a person went through terrible tragedy, you will see that the majority of last year was good. It's always that way. The majority of life is good, and every once in a while bad things happen. But the majority of life is very good. And therefore, you first have to go and really go in detail over the past. Really in detail. That's why it's very good to keep a journal. Because we forget everything. We forget everything. If we had an old journal, we just jot down the different things that happened to us during our lifetime. And then you look over the journal these weeks on the move, and you start to remember all the different things that have happened to us. We start to get an idea start to get an idea of how God has been good to us. And it's very important to know, you only know God by His actions. That's a very famous concept in Kabbalah, that we only know Hashem by His pe'ulot, by His actions. We don't know God by anything else. We don't see Him, we don't feel Him. We only know by what He does. We only know Him by what He does. If you don't think about your past, so, he has done nothing to you. Because you're not living with it. Milta de lav ramya alede inash lavadate. A thing that's not constantly pressing on a person's mind, he doesn't know it. That's the famous introduction to the book Misra'i Sharim, where he writes 
that he's not going to write any chidushim. He's not going to write any new novel ideas. He's only going to re- say things that are mefursam, that are well known and obvious to all. So why is he writing them if they're so obvious? He says because people who don't think about things don't know them. Even the most obvious, well-known things, if you don't think about them, you really don't know them. You can know them, but you're not living with them. And therefore, to know God means to think about all the actions that God has done to us. If we only know God by His actions, and the actions are only things that take place in time, so we have to reflect about the time. We have to reflect upon the past time. That's when He did all those actions. If we don't reflect upon the past, we don't see God. That we intellectually know there's a God, we know, but it's all, it's such a nebulous concept. It's so, uh, it evaporates in our mind, it doesn't mean anything to us. It's just a concept of God, but it doesn't really mean anything to us. It only has meaning when we think about the past. And therefore, the first obligation of Elul is to start going back into the past and thinking about our lives and mentioning all the kindnesses of God that have befell us. All the kindnesses. And you'd be surprised how much you'll see. Think about all the different good occasions that you had in your family. Think about the different people that got married, that you're happy they got married, that you went to a bris, that you went to bar mitzvahs. Think about all these different things. Think about good things that have happened to you. Think about the problems that you had that you were so worried about that never ever happened. So many times you had different pains and aches and you got scared and you went to the doctor. But Baruch Hashem, both of us are all healthy. Think about all these things. This is the obligation of every person to start to reflect to start to think about the kindness of God. If you think about the kindness of God, you strengthen your imunan Hashem, you strengthen your faith in God, and you start to feel Hashem. When you start to feel Hashem, then you want to serve Hashem. The Hobol of Avod says that the cornerstone of serving God is based on on recognizing the goodness of God. And it's really the same thing. Recognize the goodness of God means seize God in your life. If you see God in your life, you want to serve Him. Not merely because it's the law, not merely because I have to, but because I want to. Why do you want to serve God? Like you want to serve your father, like you want to serve your mother. Why do you want to help your father and your mother? Because you love them. You want to do everything for them. There's nothing you won't do for them. Why? Because you love them. Why do you love them? Because they've done so much for you. And feeling that love makes you want to reciprocate. That only comes if you start to make a cheshbon hanefesh in the past. Not in the future, in the past. You have to think about the past and all the good things that have happened in your life. And that has to start to make you feel Hashem in your life. This is the Aleph bet of what the Perashah is talking about. And that was the mitzvah of Bikurim, to bring the first fruits to the Kohen and the Bet HaMakdash. The idea was, the first fruit is just a token, it's a symbol. A symbol of our appreciation and gratitude for everything that God has done. But it's only one symbol. We're not really thanking God for the fruits that He's given us. For this first fruit that I'm bringing in the basket to the land. It's just a token by which we suddenly thank God for everything in our lives. And that's why we go all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people. And every person has to go back to his life. And see Hashem in his life. And this takes time and work. It really takes work, and that's why I say three minutes every day. That's our homework. Three minutes every day to sit down by ourselves without distraction, without the children, without any noise, without anything, and start to think about the past. Go back to last Rosh Hashanah if we can remember what happened then. What do we pray for then? What do we ask for? 
هرو سکور گاو هرو هنوکا گاو هرو پورین گاو those are the hallmarks by which we can remember things but you have to go back to all the details of life to try to get into the past and see God and then suddenly God becomes part of your life when God becomes part of your life now you're going before God and Rosh Hashanah that's the Aleph bit of going before God and Rosh Hashanah it says that in Mishra Sharim it says in the beginning of Mishra Sharim he asked the question what is the obligation of every man in this world so before he answers that question what is our obligation what is the goal of every person before he answers the question he asked an implicit question of well why did God create men why did God create men and his answer why God created man was and he quotes Chazal man was only created for the purpose to have pleasure from God and my father-in-law used to tell me that in Slobodka they used to teach that you have to learn to put a period after the word period man was only created for pleasure because if you read it the way it's printed man was only created to have pleasure from God so many of us think oh that's that religious thing man was created for some religious pleasure and we missed the boat of what really is the intention of that statement the intention of that statement is man created us to have pleasure period what is Al Hashem that through the pleasure that God gives us we will recognize God and see God in our lives until we finally reach the ultimate pleasure which today we can't understand that that is the ultimate pleasure but that's the Vekutba Hashem attachment to God in the next world and that is the ultimate of pleasure he says that's the greatest pleasure that man could conceive of it's the greatest happiness that a person could have being attached to God in the next world forever he says that's the greatest pleasure the greatest enjoyment the greatest happiness that man can have but that's something that's very hard to conceive so we first have to understand the base part of that statement the base part of that statement is man was created to have pleasure period that means that God wants us to enjoy food God wants us to enjoy our uh, heart beating properly and, and drawing in air and feeling good when we walk. God wants us to be happy in every single area of our lives. He wants us to have pleasure in everything we do. That's the only purpose of creation. And Al Hashem means that when we derive pleasure and happiness in life, we should then recognize this is Al Hashem, this is from God. And this is how we start to recognize God. Meaning, if you don't see pleasure in your life, you don't see God in your life. But, to be able to see pleasure in your life, and as a consequence to see God in your life, we have to go back to the fundamental point we made at the beginning of the class. A person is responsible for himself, and only he is responsible for himself. You're responsible for your own happiness, you're responsible for everything in your life. You're responsible for your health, you're responsible for your... Uh, uh, for your welfare, you're responsible for your spiritual uh, growth, you're responsible for everything in your life, and you're responsible to be able to see the happiness in your life, and as a consequence to become happy, and as a consequence to see God. And that really is the basis of everything. And this, if it's so important to feel responsible for our life, rest assured human nature is such that it makes us not feel responsible for our life. And human beings tend to see their lives as a result of forces acting upon them. 
and we are a victim of circumstances. That's how many people tend to see themselves, a victim of circumstances. Things happen and we react to it, and therefore that's what happens in our life. No, we have to feel we alone are responsible for our life, we have to take charge of our life, and we have to be responsible to do everything to make ourselves happy, and to see the happiness in our lives, and then to see God in our lives. This is the obligation and the alphabet of Hezbon HaNefesh, making accounting of your life, and he's giving us a key, the Perashah is giving us a key, start by recounting all the Chasteh HaMakom Alenu, all the kindness of God upon us. That's how we start. And that's how we start the faith of Hashanah. We have to know that last week we learned about Ben Sorero More. Ben Sorero More, we mentioned last week, was this wayward child that started a lifestyle of drinking, eating, becoming a glutton, becoming a drunkard, stealing to support that habit. And eventually we said that the Torah understood his suf, his end. Today he steals from his parents. Eventually his parents' money is going to be used up and he's going to have bigger habits and he's going to need more money than what his parents have and eventually he'll start to steal from others and eventually he becomes milasteme taberiot. He becomes one who's, who robs people and eventually he starts to kill people and eventually he forgets his learning as if that's the worst thing. That he little by little accustoms himself to a lifestyle of, 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 of eating and drinking and he has to support that and he starts to steal to support his lifestyle and eventually becomes a murderer and then in a sense he'll forget his learning as if that's the biggest deterioration the worst evil the worst evil seems to be he'll murder forget his learning is not the biggest evil it's not good to forget your learning but that's the worst evil and eventually he'll forget his learning but it seems that if he remembers his learning then he can always come back even the murderer. If learning is part of a person's life, if Torah is part of a person's life, then he can eventually come back and make Teshubah. But the Torah is predicting this person eventually with this lifestyle is going to forget his learning too. And the Torah will leave him. The Torah leaves him that which brings him back, that which brings the person back, that which brings inspiration to a person's life, that which wakes up a person to make Teshubah is missing in his life, then there's no hope for that person. And therefore, better he die today innocent than die tomorrow as a uh, criminal, as a killer. That's what the Torah seems to say. That's what we learned last week. One of the things the Ramban says that we are Torveya, that we are criticizing this kid for, this, how old is this Ben Sodem already? 13 years old. One of the things we are criticizing him is that, number one, he's violating the law by eating and drinking and overeating and overdrinking, the law of Kedoshim Tehiu, you shall be holy. Another thing he's violating, the Ramban says, that you should attach yourself to God, which Ramban explained meant that everything you do should be L'Shem Shemayim. Even the neutral things of your life should be L'Shem Shemayim. Example, you should only eat in order to be healthy, in order to serve God. You should only sleep in order to be healthy, in order to wake up and be a healthy specimen to serve Hashem, which is a very, very high level. But that's what it means to be attached to God. It means everything you do is for God. So those levels of Kiddushim to you shall be holy. 
or be attached to God, that everything you do is for God, a very, very high level. The Ramban is saying that the sin of this child, Ben Sorera Morer, is that he's violating these laws. And my problem always has been, how could you expect a 13-year-old child to reach these high levels of holy you shall be, or everything you should do should be in Hashem Shemayim, and therefore always attached to God. These are levels that are great, great Sadiqim don't reach them. And you're, and you're, and you're uh, demanding from a 13-year-old child, because he's eating too much and drinking too much, that he's violating these laws? But the answer is that we have within us an infinite greatness. Infinite greatness. We have literally a helik, a mimal. We have a portion from God above. That's our soul. Our soul is literally God himself within us. And therefore, the potential greatness of a Jew is beyond comprehension. The, the unbelievable potential of every Jew is beyond comprehension how great we can be. We are not touching 1% of our potential the best of us, is not touching 1% of our potential. We don't know what a greatness lies within us. It's the holiness of our neshama, neshmat Yisrael, the soul of a Jew. The soul of a Jew is not merely Selim Elohim, the image of God. It is God Himself. It says the Gentiles are created in the image of God, but we are banim lamakom. We are children of God. Children of God means we are made out of the same DNA. The same chromosome that God has, we have in our soul. That's our soul. It is literally a divine element within us. And if it's divine, it's infinite. If it's infinite, it means that we can reach the heights, even 13 years old, of Kedoshim Tehiyu, of You Shall Be Holy, which is the highest level, of Ubotid Bakun, we should be attached to God, which means everything you do is L'Shem Shemayim, that you live totally with Hashem. These are levels that most of the time we don't talk about because they're so far, far away from us. But we have to know that they're within us. This is the month to talk about them. Elul. Because Elul is the time, Ani le dodi, le dodi li. That as much as I am to my beloved, my beloved will be to me. As much as I show my love for Hashem by attempting through small acts. And we can only do small acts. We can't do big acts. We can only do three minutes a day. But by attempting to do small acts of Anila Dodi that I am to my beloved, then Hashem's Dodi Li, the love of God, will be expressed to us with all the full love of Hashem. The full love of Hashem is unbelievable what He will do to help us. And therefore, this is the month, Elul is the month to really sense God in your life. Elul is the month that God is going to respond to our attempts to get closer to Him with unbelievable help. He will help inspire us. And the ratio is not going to be one-to-one. -one. The ratio is not going to... During the year, it's one-to-one. -one. During the year, there's a pasuk that says, Hashem selecha al yadiminecha. Hashem is your shadow on your right side. Which is a literal meaning of the pasuk. The simple meaning of the pasuk means a person always should feel that he has Hashem right on his shoulder, protecting him. That's how he's supposed to walk around. That he's your shadow, watching over you. Every move you make. He's shadowing you wherever you go. He's protecting you. That's how you're supposed to feel. That you have a protector. Your shadow. That's Hashem. But our rabbis tell us there's another idea in shadow. 
A shadow, if you put out one finger, the shadow shows one finger. You put out two, the shadow shows two. So it says the way we act towards people, for example, if we act merciful towards people, God acts merciful towards us. If we act, if we overlook the insults that are done to us, God overlooks the insults that we do to him. There's a one-to-one ratio, a correlation of how God acts to us depends on how we act to other people. That's Hashem Silecha. That's Hashem is your shadow. That's all year round. Elul, there's a new ratio between us and God. The ratio between us and God on Elul is Anid Ledodi Vedodi Li. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. When my beloved is to me, that means the full Ahavat Hashem, the full love of God is unleashed when he sees a little bit of our actions trying to show that we love him. Trying to get closer to God a little bit opens up God's love to us and God's love to us means that he'll help us tremendously to feel inspiration, to move closer to him. And that's what the Pasuk says a little later on in the Torah, in this week's parashah, it says the following. It says, It says, God, you have elevated it. The word He'emarta means to elevate and to make special. You have made special and high God today. How did you make God high today? That you made God for you as a God. That you're going to follow His ways. L'shmor hukav, you're going to keep His commandments. Mitzvotav, l'shpatav, all the type of different types of commandments. L'shmor abekolo, and you're going to listen to His voice. That's what you're doing to God. That's how you're elevating God. That's how you're making God special by following His mitzvot, by listening to His voice. The Hashem ha'emir chayom, and Hashem is making you special today in response. How is Hashem responding to our trying to make God special? By making us special. How does God make us special? That He makes you the people that He loves. The way He told us earlier, that we are Am Segula. He helps us keep all the commandments. And He makes us higher over all the nations that God has made. Higher, that we are more praiseworthy than them, that we have a greater name than them, that we are more beautiful than them, which means that this is, Hashem, as it says, elevates the Jewish people and makes us very, very special by giving us unbelievable kochot, liyotcha am kadosh, and making us a holy people, Hashem, the way God told us that He's going to make us holy. So here we have exactly what we're talking about, this one-to-one relationship, that if we show that God is special, by serving him, by keeping his mitzvot, Hashem is going to help us keep the mitzvot. He's going to make us higher than all the peoples on earth, which means we're going to be a new category. We're not going to be just different type of human being called the Jew. The Jew is going to be higher than all the human beings. We're going to be higher than all the peoples on earth, that we're going to be so much praiseworthy, so much higher, so much more beautiful than all the peoples, and we're going to be a holy people. This is what God bestows upon the Jewish people when we make God special. That's how God responds to us. He makes us special. This is the love of God that comes out to us on Elul. This is what we have to feel. This is the Ephrat Thorn. This is the time when Hashem loves us so much that He's going to respond to everything we do by making us so special. And we have to sense this, that this is the opportunity of a lifetime. 
we can't let the Elul go by. This month's Kanaka was already, what's the tenth of Elul already? We can't let it go by. One week and a couple of days have gone by already of Elul. We have to grab hold the next three weeks till Rosh Hashanah and use every day, not too much, a little bit every day, to try to climb the heights. But a little bit every day awakens a reciprocal movement from God to help us reach much higher heights than we attend. If we put in three minutes a day to think about the chasteh Hashem, the kindness of God in our life, and think about the past, you'll be surprised what Hashem will do to us. Not three minutes a day. 24 hours a day by seven. That's what He'll be doing with us. We have to do those three minutes. We have to do that little bit. Why do we have to do only three minutes? Let's do a couple of hours a day. We're not angels yet. And there's a concept called gradualism. You have to go gradually up the ladder. You can't do too much at one time. And Chazal say, Tafasta miruba, not tafasta. If you grab hold of too much, you haven't grabbed hold of anything. Tafasta mu'at, tafasta. If you grab hold of a little bit, tafasta. Then you've grabbed hold of something. And therefore we have to go step by step. But we have to do these kind of exercises. These are the things. Because if you don't take charge of your life and focus a certain amount of time in a consistent way every day, we don't change. You only change. My father always used to say, he used to coin a certain word. He said we should have a list of anhagot to mediot. We should have a list of anhagot, actions or behaviorisms that are to mediot, that are constant. Meaning, what are you going to do every day of your life? Certain things you should do every single day of your life. If you do it every day of your life, it'll start to penetrate, start to make an impression on you. He used to give examples. We were in learning, so he used to give examples of learning. Learn two pesukim of Mishle a day. Two sentences of Proverbs a day. So you look at a big deal. How long does it take to learn two pesukim? Two. But if you do it every day, and you review it, and you think about it, only two, you don't have that much to think about. Two sentences of Mishle every day, you think about it. Imagine if I would have done that when I was 18 years old, when he told me it. Now we're much older than 18. Now, as many, many years have passed. If I would have done that every single day, two pesukim a day, I would probably have on as part of my knowledge inside out. And all the other things he told us to do every day. But we are told that that's how you grow. Not by big leaps, not by sudden inspirations, heroic acts. You grow by the small things that you do every single day. One of the things you have to do every day, which is the alphabet, which is the beginning of all spiritual growth, is to think about the kindnesses of God in your life. Because that's how you start to bring God into your life. That's how you start to feel God. Because we only know God by His actions, and His actions mean what has happened to us over the last years. What has happened to us? Go back. Go back in time. Think about all the way back. How'd you get where you got? I remember when I was a young man, and I was at the first time I was with my father-in-law, Rabbi Davis, in the summer. It was the summer of 1962. And it was, he had a summer camp, and I was a regular SY guy. So, you know, okay, with this rabbi with a beard, and I was a little, uh, you know, hesitant. I was sitting around a campfire in the mountains, in the Catskill Mountains, in Parksville, New York. And he quoted the Horvot Levavot, who said that if you want to sense God in your life, go back, all the way back, and look at your past, 
and see how did you get from where your past was to this day? How did you get to where you are today? Trace the steps. And suddenly you'll sense God picking you up by the hand and walking you. And you'll sense God in your life. So he says, so who wants to start? Who wants to start? Where was the starting point of your life? No one wanted to start. So he's like, okay, I'll start. What did he start? He told the story about how he was in Yeshiva University in 1929. He had left Baltimore after graduating John Hopkins University. He went to Yeshiva University to study. Yeshiva University in those years did not have a college. They just had a Yeshiva. It was called Yitzchak Khan and Yeshiva. Didn't have a college. It was just a Yeshiva. So he went to study there. That year that he went to study, they instituted a college. And that caused a lot of distress to many of the students in the yeshiva. Because they felt you're watering down the yeshiva. Yeshiva is not supposed to be a college. Now you're bringing college into the yeshiva. What are you doing? It's so they caused a little bit of a noise. They made a protest. And my father looked quit the yeshiva. He quit the yeshiva. He was only a few weeks and he quit. So he's learning by himself now outside the yeshiva, in a little shul across the street from the yeshiva. And he's studying Gemara by himself. He had left Baltimore with hopes of learning yeshiva. He got very disappointed. And therefore he's studying Torah by himself. He's a young man. He must have been about 20 years old at the time. And he's all alone. And a young man walks over to him. A, a boy maybe two, three years younger than him maybe 17, 18 years old, the boy is, comes over to him, and he comes with a very warm, Shalom Aleichem, how you doing? Warm Shalom Aleichem, how you doing? How am I doing? Very, very hard. He says, what's hard? He says, I don't know, I don't understand, number one, I don't understand the Gemara. He says, why don't you understand the Gemara? He's because on that bit, on page two it says this and this, on page seven, it says the opposite. So the boy said, ooh, that's a great question. He says, great question, I don't understand it. He says, no, you're not supposed to understand it. That's how Gemara is. You ask questions, and you give, and you take, and you analyze, and, you, and one builds, and one tears down, and one destroys, and goes back and forth, and you use your mind, and that's how you develop your mind, that's how you penetrate into the Word of God, and he says, this is all new talk for him. He never thought Torah was that. He thought Torah was like a Shulchan Aruch, like a law book. You study it, simple, not to uh, use your mind, you delve into it, all kinds of questions and answers. So you're very inspired by this boy. He said, well, they don't study like that here. He said, no, but that's how they study in Europe. That's how they study in Europe. Let's go to Europe. He says, no, my parents will never let me. Your parents will never let you? I'll speak to your parents. So he graduated from John Hopkins. He could speak to his parents. He has credibility. He went to his parents. He spoke on his best Oxfordian English. And he tried to impress that he will take full responsibility upon the boy, and so on and so forth. And eventually, they went to Europe that year. They traveled on a boat 3,000 miles, they went to the Mir Yeshiva. Who was that boy? Rabbi Nassim Vachsvogel, the mashkiach of the uh, Lakewood Yeshiva, who passed on a couple of years ago. They were friends, lifelong, lifelong friends. What happened? So this I heard from my father, but I also heard it in Lakewood in the Shmuz. Rabbi Nassim said over, that that warm Shalom Aleichem changed the world. Because what happened from that time? We both went young boys to Europe to study. Rabbi Davis came back a year later because of the incident that he was smuggling money into Russia and they 
where he was staying in Poland, the yeshiva in Poland of Mir, wouldn't give him a visa to continue staying there because they were angry he went to Russia. So he had to return to America. So he returned to America, but now he's inspired. He had a year's learning. And he met the Hafez Saim, and he met Rabbi Yerucham of the Mir, and he saw the giants of the yeshiva. So he came out totally inspired. So he started little by little to infiltrate all the boys in YU and send them to Europe one after another. So he sent Rabbi Avigdor Miller, he sent Rabbi Mordechai Gifter, the Rashid of Tells, he sent Rabbi Scheinberg, the one with all the seed on him. He sent the Zimmerman brothers who became the Mohel, Rabbi Zimmerman, the Mo- and he sent a whole bunch of boys to Europe. And those boys that went to Europe from America in the 30s came back and they established all the yeshivot that we have in America. So Rabbi Nassim said, look how one Shalom Aleichem changed the world. The whole Torah world was changed because he went over to Rabbi Davis that time. And then Rabbi Davis himself, that year in America, met Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher, who was a Rosh Hashim of Slobodka, not Poland and Lithuania. And in Lithuania, he'll get a visa. So he got a visa and went back to Europe to study in, under Rabbi Isaac Sher in Slobodka, and that changed his whole life. So all of that came from one little meeting. And he said, this is an illustration of how Hashem comes into your life, picks you up by the hand, and brings you to your success. It's these little actions that we don't notice at the time. Little boy coming over, saying, how you doing, befriending another man who he sees by himself, talking about what learning Torah really is, using your mind, analyzing, finding out that that's what they study in the European yeshivas that way, both going off to Europe to study, and so on and so forth. Now, Rav Nassim also has a tremendous history. He went to the Mir, he left the Mir for a year, went to Kamenetz, he studied under Rav Baruch there, and eventually he came back and with my father-in-law became the small group that started Lakewood Yeshiva. Lakewood Yeshiva was started in White Plains originally by a small group of these men that came back from Europe, and then they heard Rabbi Kutler just escaped from the war, during the 1943 during the war, and they went to him, and they asked him to become the Rosh Yeshiva, and he became the Rosh Yeshiva of this White Plains group, and he moved the yeshiva to Lake, and that was the beginning of Lake. Eventually, Rab Nassim was chosen by Rabbi Kutler to the, be the right-hand man of Rabbi Kutler, to be the mashkiach in the yeshiva. So Rab Nassim said, he met a lot of great people in his lifetime. He went to the Mir and studied under Rabbi Ruchum, the great Rabbi Ruchum. He went to Kamenetz and studied under Rabbi Baruch Baim, one of the famous Gedolim. He did a lot of, he studied the European yeshivas, but the zechut, he felt that he was zocher to become the mashkiach of the Lakewood yeshiva for over 50 years. That zechut, he said, was because he felt he was part of the protest in YU when they first brought in college, and he was one of the boys that went to Dr. Rebel, who was the rebel, who was the head of YU at the time, and he made a protest. This is not a yeshiva. And... When he came to the dining room, they all got up and started to clap with the boys. And he said, that initiative that he did on his own, not as of yet with the sophistication of Torah the way it was in Europe, but with the sincerity in America, that he felt was a zechut that made him eventually the mashkiach like with Yeshiva. And so much Torah came out from him. So we don't understand when a person really grows. And sometimes we grow at the very time when we think we're in the worst situation possible, when we are abandoned, when we are not in the best situation. That's the time many times when we grow the most. But Nassim felt he did not grow 
in Europe as much as he grew before he went to Europe in America when he was not in the best situation and climate of studying Torah and learning. That's where he felt he really grown. But this is how you start to see the Chasteh Hashem. This is how you start to see the miracles of life. And this is how you start to understand how to feel Hashem in your life and your closest to Hashem. By reflecting on the Chasteh Hashem, on the kindness of God, and reflecting what happened and where each person, what move did he make, what happened in his life that suddenly changed his life. I know. So then they asked me, so where did you, what's your uh, story? So I never said my story then. But many years later, when I was with a bunch of young boys, and I was already a rabbi, I asked them to do the same thing. And they were also shy. And they didn't know what I meant. So I said, I'll start off. And I told a story that began with me. And I told how I was a young boy, just graduated high school, and my best friend Henry came to me and said, listen, they're opening up a new yeshiva. You want to give $10? You want to give ma'aseh? I was making $100 a week. Would you give ma'aseh to the new yeshiva? I said, fine. No problem. It's $10 to a kid who doesn't have a family to support a single boy. nothing. No problem. I'll give you $10. Now, we used to play basketball all Sunday. And after we played basketball in the school, all Sunday we go to the deli. And in the deli, there was about 25 boys eating. So I go around and say, give me $5, $10 for Henry's yeshiva. New yeshiva is open. Give me, give me, give me. Okay, I got $100, $150, $200, $300, depending on the take. And every Sunday night before I went home, dropped the money off by Henry. And this went on for a few weeks. Henry tells me, the rabbi wants to meet you. I said, I don't want to meet no rabbi. Give me the money. He says, but the, you're supporting the Holy Yeshiva. I said, no, I'm only giving $10. The rest is from the boys. Says, uh, the rabbi said, bring the boys too. So we went, about five, six boys. No one else would come. And the five, six boys went to meet the rabbi. And we met the rabbi. We were very impressed. He talked about music and doo-wop sounds. We used to sing in those days. And we were very impressed with the rabbi. And little by little, we started to learn. And we started to learn until we learned every night, every morning, until we eventually we left work, college, and we went to the yeshiva full-time. So I always feel that was the beginning of the life. That one event happened. Now, of course, there's other events, but that one event some, suddenly comes out in your life and you start to think that was a turning point person came to you for tzedakah, you gave him tzedakah, I didn't think it was a big deal, but it says in the Torah that you give tzedakah and see if I don't open up the storehouses of heaven and pour down blessing until you say die, until you say enough, go see if I don't do it, you can test me in this, please test me, it's the only mitzvah you're allowed to test God, if you give tzedakah, you're allowed to test God and say, God, you promise if you give tzedakah that you'll, you'll show me berachah, and I'll say, Enough. You'll give me so much Benachah, I can say enough. And that's the one Mitzvah you can test me. So don't we have Benachah? And therefore, that's how every person has to start to look into his past. What started him off? Where is he going? And start from this year. What happened this year? What happened this year? To see the Chasteh Hashem, the kindnesses of God. That's the Aleph bit of, of, uh, of Cheshbon HaNefesh. Again, the infinite greatness that we could reach is Kedoshim Tehiru is bought to Bakun, that we can become attached to God, we can live our lives totally like great Sadiqim, like holiest of people, but the way to get there, the way to get there is step by step. Very small steps. Excuse me? Very small steps. Gradual steps. 
one by one. That's how you get there. And you have to do little exercises. And therefore, the first thing I'm suggesting is three minutes a day, three minutes a day to reflect every day for the next month until Rosh Hashanah, every day to think about the Chastei Hashem, to think about the kindness of your life. And you have to go back over the year and think about all the things that have happened over the year. And that's how you start to feel Hashem in your life. Any questions before I go further? Okay. One of the things that we're supposed to think about every day, and most of us don't, is Sapita Ali Yeshua. Did you look forward and anticipate the Geulah, the redemption, the salvation of the coming of Mashiach? Now, that's a topic that really in practicality, very few people really think about. But it's one of the things they're going to ask us, above and apart, all the laws are going to ask us when we die, after 120 years, we should all have a good, healthy 120 years on this earth. But after we eventually go up to Kiseh HaKavod, they're going to ask us different questions. They're going to ask us if we fix time for learning. They're going to ask us if we were honest in business. They're going to ask us, Sipita Ali Yeshua, did you anticipate the Mashiach? And that's something that we can do every day. And therefore, it's obligated to do every day, to think about Mashiach. In fact, in the 13 principles of Harambam, it's one of the things where it emphasizes, Bechol Yom Every day I anticipate you coming. Now, to think about Mashiach is almost, almost like um, something that's not really part of our daily lives. It's not part of Halakha in a normal sense. So I just want to say over a few things about Mashiach to make it a little bit more tangible. When World War I started, many of the boys in the yeshiva came to the Hafez Saim and asked them, is this the war of Gog and Magog? Is this the war of all wars that's going to bring Mashiach? Because we know in general this is what we call Milchemet Gog and Magog, the war of Gog and Magog. And that war is going to bring Mashiach. So they asked the Haver Saim in World War One. World War One, you should know, was an unbelievable tragedy to the Jewish people when it first happened. Today, World War One pales in comparison to what happened in World War Two when we lost six million people by the Nazis in Machshimo. But World War One was a tremendous, tremendous tragedy to the Jewish people and it was Terrible, terrible, I mean, communities became uprooted, people were living in exile away from the home for six, seven years, it was unbelievable. And when they were re-established, it was very hard to re-establish until they finally moved back to where they were. And therefore they asked the Hafez Saim, is this the war of Gog and Magog? And the Hafez Saim answered then that you should know that this war is going to be for more years, they asked him at the beginning of the war, and then there's going to be a hefsek, a break. And there's going to be another war. And there's going to be a break. Then there's going to be another war. And that last war will bring Mashiach. 
this Kabbalah, this tradition that the Hafez Sayyim said this, I heard it from several sources. I heard it from my father-in-law in the name of Elkhana Wasserman, that that's one of the things Rabbi Wasserman said over prior to World War II, not prior to World War II, but World War II first broke out and he wanted, he was in America at the time, raising funds for the yeshiva in Europe, he wanted to go back to Europe and everyone tries to tell him it's not safe to go back, it's too dangerous, he said he has to go back, a shepherd can't abandon his sheep and he has to go back and they spoke about this, he mentioned this concept of three wars of the Hafez Sayyid. I also heard it from Rabbi Nassim Vakfogel, from a different source totally, he said that in 1945, Rabbi Kutler said this, not in the name of the Hafez Sayyid, but just as a Kabbalah that he has, that this is going to be, that there's going to be three wars of Gog and Magog. And he knows, and the year that Rabbi Kutler died, which was 1962, Rabbi Vakfogel was visiting Rabbi Kutler in the hospital a few weeks before he died, and he asked him, is this Kabbalah true? He just wants to review it because he heard it in 1945 from him. And in 1962, Rabbi Kabbalah repeated the same Kabbalah that he had. And he says he knows this, with a very clear understanding that this is 100% going to be. That there's going to be three parts to the war of Gugumano. We've already had two of them. We already had two parts, and now the third. We don't know when the third is going to be, but the third will bring Mashiach. There's another Kabbalah, independent from this one, another tradition, in the name of the Maril Diskin. Maril Diskin was a great rabbi who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said that the last war that will bring Mashiach will only be three hours. The last war that will bring Mashiach will only be three hours. And Rabbi Kaplan, hearing this, said that he had to be a very big Baruch HaKodesh. He had to be a very, very big person possessing Ruach HaKodesh to understand that a war could be three hours. Today, any kid could understand a war could be three hours with Star Wars and with nuclear power and with all that we have today. But in the 1800s, to conceive that a war could be the war to end all wars and bring Mashiach and it could only be three hours, it was impossible. He said he had to be a very big Baruch HaKodesh to understand that. But he said that the, the war will only be three hours. And then he added an Elachiyidin, which means honest, God-fearing Jews. That's the Yiddish term. Elachiyidin means God-fearing Jews will not be touched by the war. That's what he added. That from people will not be from Honest people will not be touched by the war. Rabbi Kutler, upon hearing this, said, who can say if we're Elohim? Who can say if we're really God-fearing people? But nonetheless, it says the God-fearing people will not be touched by that last war. I'm just mentioning these things a little bit to make us think about Mashiach. Because it's one of the things we're supposed to think about. If we're talking about a cheshbon hanefesh that we have to make, before Rosh Hashanah, you have to start thinking about all the chastashim. You have one obligation to think about the future. And that's to yearn for something that's coming in the future. So I'm just trying to put some skin and bones on this concept that we have something tangible to think about. I will tell you another thought. In 1962, Rabbi Kutler passed on. When Rabbi Kutler passed on in 1962, many of the boys in Lakewood Yeshiva, which was then the only Yeshiva in the world that was that high of level. Today, Baruch Hashem, we have thousands of Yeshivot of high level. But then it was the only Yeshiva in the world in those years of that level. 
So when he passed on, he was such a tower of greatness. When he passed on, no one knew how the yeshiva would continue. Nobody knew how Torah would continue of that level. So they came to him and they asked Rabbi Vaxfog, who was Mashkiach, what's going to be? What's going to be? So he says, he'll tell you, he'll say over a dream that Rabbi Yaakov Schiff had. Rabbi Yaakov Schiff was one of the outstanding students of Rabbi Kotler, who became the son-in-law of the Briskarov, a very famous person. He said he had a dream a few weeks before Rabbi Kotler passed on. What was the dream he had? The dream was that Eliyahu Navi was sleeping. Now we know that Eliyahu Navi is going to be the forerunner of Mashiach. First, Eliyahu Navi is going to come and help prepare the ground, so to speak, for Mashiach to come. So it says Eliyahu Navi was sleeping. And the Hatam Sofed, which was one of the greatest rabbis that lived in the 1800s, tried to wake him up. And he didn't wake up. Then Rabbi Kotler came and tried to wake him up, and he didn't wake up. They shook him and everything, he didn't wake up. Then, regular average yeshiva boys went to wake him up. And immediately he got up. So Abnasen interpreted the dream to say that you should know that Mashiach is not going to come in a time, in a generation we have some great leaders going to bring him. It's going to come by the B'nai Torah, the regular people who are not great Gidolim, who are small people, and they're going to accomplish the biggest things. And the Zohar, it says an expression, Great things will be done by small vessels. When? In the footsteps of Messiah. Meaning, that you know who Mashiach is going to come to? Not the great Gedolim and Sandikim. It's going to come to our generation. People like us can bring Mashiach with our midfoot, with our Torah. Not that we're greater, but we're at the end. And at the end, you don't need the Gadol. At the end, all you need is people sincerely trying to keep mitzvot, they're going to bring Mashiach. One of the other things that Rabbi Nassim said over when he met the Hafed Saim that time in 1930, the first thing was I said early in the class was that he says in Olam Hazer things, in this world, worldly things, your father or uncle or grandfather could help you, but not in spirituality. The other thing he told them was, you think Mashiach can't come? You think God can't bring Mashiach? He can bring it. But He wants us to bring Mashiach. He wants us to bring Mashiach. We have to bring Mashiach. And that's what the Havetzim told these young boys. So we have to sense, we have to sense that we, even though we are Kelim Ketanim, we are small vessels. We should not live in a world of illusion that we're somebody great. We're not great. We're regular people. But we're very fortunate that we live at the right time. We live at the time when we don't see any more Gedolim of the stature that we had in previous years. We don't have great people like we used to have. There's no question about it. Everyone agrees to this. We do not have the great people we used to have. So on one hand, that could look like a terrible, terrible tragedy for us. And it is a tragedy in one sense because we don't have those great people to inspire us. But on the other hand, we have to know that when we lose our Gedolim, the greatness of the Jewish people is given over to the regular people. When we had the Gedolim, the Gedolim did the big things. When we don't have the leaders, we do the big things. Because ultimately the promise was to the Jewish people. And we live at that time in history. 
when we can bring Mashiach. And therefore we have to feel that way. And it's one of the things, if you look at the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, if you study the prayers, especially the first paragraph that we add after the first three paragraphs that are part of all prayers, but what's unique to Rosh Hashanah, if you study the first thing, basically it's a prayer for the coming of Mashiach, for Hashem to set up the world with Mashiach as the king of the world. That's the first prayer of Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, and that's why I thought of it, as part of the preparation for Rosh Hashanah, as part of the things we have to be thinking about, we have to start to think about Mashiach too. Because that's what we're going to be praying for in three weeks. For Mashiach to come. It shouldn't suddenly be a new idea that comes into our head on Rosh Hashanah and only unique to the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. But we should be thinking about it that by the time we come to pray on Rosh Hashanah for Mashiach, it's a concept that we've been thinking about. Mashiach is going to change the world. Mashiach is going to change the entire world. He's going to bring everyone back to the truth. He's going to have evidently exceptional abilities to enlighten people, to inspire people, to bring people back. It says once he starts to bring people back, immediately there's going to be a tremendous thirst for knowledge. And everyone's going to come to him and he's going to lead people. How he will spread his word over the entire world, I don't know. Maybe he'll be using television. Probably. Television that will be kosher. <laughs> when Mashiach and only Mashiach is the only station. And when Mashiach is on the television and giving us Torah, soon there'll come a situation when all of your children God will be those that know God and study God and don't need, no one will need a teacher anymore everyone's going to become great scholars plus the fact there's going to be abundance of blessing that we shouldn't have to worry about how to make a living or worry about any worldly thing and we can devote all our time to good deeds and to acquisition of wisdom and Torah and that's another thing we have to think about before Mashiach will come we don't have to change the world before Mashiach. We just have to change ourselves, and Mashiach will change the world. That's how our attitude should be. This, by the way, was a conversation, again, between Rabbi Waxfogel and Rabbi Kotler, when they opened up the first satellite yeshiva of Lakewood, which was Philadelphia yeshiva, maybe 40, over 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, when they opened up the first satellite yeshiva, so Rabbi Nassim was very excited. He said, I think we can start to really change things. Get boys to go to yeshiva. No one went to yeshiva in those years. Nobody. Suddenly boys are coming to high school yeshiva. They're out of high school, yeshiva. People are studying post-8th grade. No one went to yeshiva post-8th grade in those years. You have to know that. If you went to yeshiva till 8th grade, you were very, very fortunate. Most people went to public school. But if you even went to yeshiva, that was only to 8th grade. No one went to high school yeshiva. There was no high school yeshivas in those years. No one. And now, he's opening up a high school, and people are starting to come, young, regular Americans are coming to yeshiva. So he thought, there's going to be a great change. So my cousin said, take it easy. We're not going to change the situation totally until Mashiach comes. He's the only one who will be able to do it. We have to try, though. We try, and we bring Mashiach, and Mashiach will do the rest. That's what we have to feel. That's another thought we have to think. We have to start to become thinking in a big way to get out of our Dalar Amut, out of our own personal life, and start to project, we want the world to be fixed. And when Mashiach will come, he'll fix the entire world. And when that happens, life is different. Some people say they don't want Mashiach to come. Because God forbid if Mashiach will come right now. Are we ready to talk to him? Are we ready for him to look into us and see everything? Are we ready for him to see our whole inside? Are we ready to meet Mashiach? So we say, no, don't come right away. Wait. 
We got to shape up. So good. So let's shape up. Part of greeting and anticipating Mashiach is to is to be ready for him. Is to make teshubah. But making teshubah is very easy. The Padavicharov used to travel all over the world to raise money for yeshivot. So he was going to South Africa. In South Africa, there were a lot of European Jews from Lithuania, Litvisha Jews that went to South Africa and settled there, became multi-millionaires. So Padavicharov, this is going back to the 20s, used to travel to South Africa to raise funds there. So before he went to South Africa, he went to the Hafez Sayyim, and he asked the Hafez Sayyim, what should I tell the people of South Africa? Give me a message. There were people far, far away from the center of Torah. The center of Torah was then, in those years, in the 20s, in Europe. In South Africa, there was nobody. It was like, uh, you know, like in a desert, spiritual desert. So he asked the Hafez Sayyim, what message should I give over to the people of South Africa? Hafez Sayyim's words were, Tell the people of South Africa that Teshubah is easy. Harata and Kabbalah. Harata, regret and commitment. That's all it is. Regret and commitment. You regret and sorry that you did something wrong and commitment not to do it again. Finish. Tell them it's easy. The Yetzirah wants to make them believe it's very difficult. It's a flicker of your mind. It's just a focus of your mind and you're new. The Gemara says an amazing thing. The Gemara says that there's such a thing called a condition to marriage. A condition to marriage means that I say, I marry you, I'm giving you I'm giving you the ring or the, the, the silver coin, but I put a condition. I'm marrying you on condition that your house is blue. If your house is blue, you're married. If your house is not blue, you're not married. So let's say a guy makes a a uh, conditional marriage by saying I'm marrying you today on condition that I today am a sadiq gamur I am a 100% righteous person that's what I say I'm marrying you today on condition that I am 100% a total sadiq the Imara says that even if we know this man two minutes earlier was the biggest rasha in the world we have to consider that maybe she's married why maybe she's married? Because maybe Hedhu Teshubah Belibo. Maybe he thought Teshubah in his heart. We know he just left the biggest sins. He just left the biggest sins. He's the biggest Rasha. And he says, I'm marrying you on condition. I'm the greatest Sadiq. We have to worry maybe if she's married. And we have to, she needs a divorce if not to go free. And she's considered married. Why is she considered married? Maybe he thought Teshubah. So if he thought Teshubah for one second, that makes him into a Sadiq Gamur? Yes. Even Rasha Gamur, in one second thought, becomes Sadiq Gamur. That's how easy Teshubah is. It's just a, Mindset, a change of your mindset. I'm new. I'm sorry and I'm new. And that's all it is. And suddenly you become, immediately your soul changes, your midor change, everything changes, and you become a new person. Of course, you now have to start working on different things. Shadet Teshubah, the book on Teshubah, gives all 20, 30 different levels of Teshubah. But that's already levels. But the essence of Teshubah is very simple, the Hafez Sayyim says. And that's the message you should give these people living in South Africa, meaning these people already left religion. Tell them Teshubah is very easy. We have to take that message too, because everyone needs Teshubah. Everyone has to grow before Rosh Hashanah. Teshubah is very easy. That's our message. All we need is Kharata and Kabbalah. All we need is regret and commitment. 
regret for the old, commitment for the future. And that's all it is. If we have that, we can change ourselves before the Shana. But we have to be inspired. Inspired is going back to the past to feel God in our life. What else? Any questions? Okay, end of class. Yes? Just, is it true that the Nei Israel have to put three Shabbat in a row for Mashiach to come? Is that just like a... No. It's, <coughs> Mashiach can come any time, any second. And by the way, when Mashiach will come, you know how fast things are going to change? I'm going to tell you one halakha about Mashiach, just to put another thing to think about. It says that, it's the whole question when Mashiach will come. So the question is, can he come on Erev Shabbat? Can he come Friday afternoon? What's the question? Why yes, why no? Because people have to prepare for Shabbat. How are they going to, if Mashiach comes, they're going to have to stop preparing for Shabbat and run to greet him. How, how is Shabbat going to get done? So maybe he won't come and bother us on Erev Shabbat. Maybe he won't bother us on Friday. But says, no, no, no. He will come on, he can come on Friday, no problem. Because the minute he comes, the rest of the world will become our slaves. Right away? That day? Yes. The truth is suddenly going to hit people so clearly that all people are suddenly going to say, we have to help these Jewish people keep Shabbat. And they'll take over, they'll cook everything, kosher. Look how fast things can happen, like that. So the question, oh, your question was, so what about the two Shabbatot in a row? You said three, it's two. What about the thing that you heard about two Shabbatot in a row? The last says another thing, that if we do keep two Shabbatot ka'alacha, 100%, properly, like the halakha, in a row, Mashiach will come. That's a special sigulat to bring Mashiach. But that doesn't mean that's the only way he can come. He can come from many other ways. There's many cheshbonot from Hashem. Okay.